The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Welcome to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCoon. I serve as pastor of Zion Church. We're a congregation of believers who trust in the simple message of God's sovereign grace, where families come together to worship God in spirit and in truth through the simplicity of preaching, praying, and singing. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. If you live in the Gordo area or if you are visiting in the area, please join us for worship. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. You may recall that in the last two messages on the kingdom of God, we discussed the fact that our God is the one true God. We saw that it's very important that we understand that he is truly God and that he is the only God. Today, we look at another very important characteristic of God, that he is not only the one true God, he is also the living God. Our God is alive, unlike the gods of the heathen and the gods of this world. He is a living God. We're going to see from Scripture that the Old Testament writers believe this. Jesus himself declared it. And the New Testament writers also clung to this wonderful truth. The fact that our God is a living God should make a difference in our lives, and certainly it should make a difference in our churches. I am so thankful that the God I worship is alive and well today. In the first half of this sermon, we begin looking at this wondrous truth that our God is a living God, and we will conclude it tomorrow by seeing how it should affect us in our daily lives. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
You may recall last time we were here that uh, we began talking about the articles of faith of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. These articles of faith were adopted by Zion Primitive Baptist Church on the Saturday before the third Sunday in May of 1847, which according to my research was May 15th, May 15th of 1847. This year is the 175th anniversary of the Constitution of Zion Church. If you'll look at those articles of faith, and Lord willing, we're going to go through them as we talk about the kingdom of God and what it is. We've already explored the idea and understood, I believe, that uh, the kingdom of God that we're talking about, that Jesus was talking about when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was the church. It's the visible aspect of that kingdom. Certainly, in one sense, the kingdom of God is every elect child of God everywhere. But in the sense that we're talking about it and that the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist as well was talking about it, we're talking about the church of the living God. Paul says that the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. And, and so as I, as I disseminated those articles of faith this morning, I want you to see them. I also want to make the point that we've not had to change them in 175 years. And the most important point is this, is that's because they are based upon what thus saith the Lord. And Lord willing, as we go through these, we're going to see that. Because that only one of, the, one of the articles of faith goes something like this. I believe it's the second one. It says, the only rule of faith and practice is the Word of God. And that ought to be the goal of every single church, wherever it may be, is that the only rule of faith and practice is what thus saith the Lord. And that's what we want to show. We want to, we want to explore these articles of faith. And we want to look at these articles of faith and measure them by the Word of God. Last time we began to look at Article 1, which says, We believe in one true and living God, and that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You know, many people are looking for a church today. And too often, we're looking for a church that suits our needs. You know, I like that. I want a church that fits what I want, right? <laughs> I want a church to be like I want. I want it to be entertaining. I, want to, I like the, the lights, camera, and action out there in the world today. Doesn't that appeal to us naturally? <laughs> Someone asked me recently, if I had to set up a church, how would you do it? And I'd say I would, I would make sure that I set it up as simply as possible. You see, simplicity is the hallmark of the church. Last time we talked about the fact that this article of faith tells us that we believe in one true and living God. We believe in a true God and, and that that means he truly is God and we're not. And that means that he gets to set up the church the way he wants to because it's his church. We're told he paid for it with his own blood. He told Peter and the apostles there, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that rock wasn't Peter. Praise God it wasn't Peter. Because Peter fell away over just a few days or weeks later. He was, he was cursing God and denying Christ. Praise God it's not built upon Peter and it's not built upon you and I. What's it built upon? What's the rock that he's talking about? It's the rock of the revelation from God to man that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. He is the true God. And, and the church, the church ought to have a big God theology. 
we, we talked about that last time. I'm not going to review it in detail, but, but just remember, if your God is not a big God, then maybe he's not the right God. <laughs> you know, if, if your God is not a great God, then maybe there's something wrong with your theology. And I want to say to you, beloved, that our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. My God, our God here at this church is a great God. We've talked about He's the Creator God. He created everything out of nothing. Isn't that something? He created everything out of nothing. There was nothing there. The, the Big Bang Theory just doesn't work because you have, in order to believe the Big Bang Theory, you have to believe that something is eternal, and in that case, it's matter. <laughs> well, that's just as difficult to believe as anything else being eternal, right? <laughs> People like to promote that as, oh, that's better than believing in God. How is that better than believing in God? Things, stuff is eternal. And there's no design. There's no, there's no creator. There's no intelligence behind it. I'm so thankful to believe that, and the Bible teaches, that in the beginning God created. And that means God was in the beginning. And in fact, that means God was before the beginning. Because in order to cause a beginning, you have to exist before the beginning, right? <laughs> in the beginning, God. He is a great God, a creator God. He spoke it, and it was so. He said it, and it came to pass. He declared it, and it became something. He called that which is not as though it were, and guess what? It was. <laughs> And he also legislated and it was right. You know, sometimes we get, we struggle with the fact that our sense of morality and our sense of what's right, which is tainted by the world, by the way, by the natural man, it sort of gets crossed up with what God says is right in the scripture. You know, in fact, over there where God starts, is telling, or where Paul is telling the Roman church about God's uh, uh, sovereign grace, his, etern his glorious electing grace. He, he tells him in the ninth chapter there about how, how the, uh, the, the purpose of God according to election is, is going to stand. He said, that's the reason I'm telling you about all this. He said that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of uh, works, but of him that calleth. And he, and he goes on to say, after he explains it to him, he says, what shall, shall we then say to these things? Is there unrighteousness with God? And that's often what happens is people charge God with unrighteousness. They say it just wouldn't be right if God chose a people before the foundation of the world. Everybody has got to have a chance. Beloved, I can't, I can't survive on a chance salvation. I know me too well. I know what I would do if all I had was a chance. I'd take the chance to go out and do whatever I wanted to do out there in the world. And I would mess up anything that was given to me to make my eternal salvation secure. I would mess it up. You know how many things I messed up in my life? <laughs> I, can't even, I don't even want to tell you. I don't even want to start naming them. You see, the God that I believe in is so great that he can even overcome my frailty. And he says he's righteous. He says, he said, whatever he does, shall not the judge of all the earth do right, Abraham asks. And, and Abraham is not asking a question to try to figure out the answer. He knows the answer. That's a rhetorical question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Guess what? Our God, our big God, always does right. Always does right. And by the way, when we accuse him of unrighteousness, it's either because we don't understand 
what he's talking about, or we don't understand God. He says, God forbid, don't, don't accuse me of unrighteousness. I'm a righteous God. And by the way, you just misunderstand it. By the way, the doctrine of election is not about the wrath of God. Sometimes we get mixed up. I, I have, even in my past, I would think in this way, and others that I know believe this, they believe in something called double predestination. <laughs> That God predestinated one, a, a people to heaven and he predestinated a people to hell. We don't need God's help getting to hell, okay? We were merrily on our way through the sin of Adam. You know what election is all about? You know what the doctrine of God's great sovereign grace, his predestinating love is all about mercy and love. He says, he says that Moses said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. If you see election in any other way as the mercy and the love and the compassion of God, then you've missed out on what election's really all about. It's about God loving us and, 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 and making it certain that we would be with him in heaven. You see, our God is a big God. He's able to handle it. We can't handle it. He's able to handle it. I can't handle the stuff in my life. He can handle it. I struggle every day. I'm stressed every day, but God can handle it. If I could remember that God is a big God. And that's what our God here at this church ought to be. He says he is the one true, but now listen, and living God. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, the Lord being our helper. He is the living God. Now I want to take you to a few scriptures, first of all that affirm the fact that God is a living God. You see, Christianity is unique. The founder of every other religion in the world has a tomb somewhere. Some, sometimes people know it, where it is, and they go worship at it, or they make a pilgrimage to it. Muhammad is dead and buried. Buddha is dead and buried. Confucius is dead and buried. But the Lord Jesus Christ died but is risen we're the only religion that believes in a living god one who was dead but is now alive notice what the writers of the old and new testament tell us about this over in deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 26 moses believed in a living god he said for who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived. <laughs> Moses believed in a living God. Let's see what about Joshua. Joshua took Moses' place. Over in the third chapter of Joshua, we find that Joshua believed in a living God. In chapter 3 and verse 10, Joshua said, Hereby shall you know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Ammonites and the Jebusites. Joshua believed in a living God. I won't turn there, but you can sometime in 1 Samuel chapter 17, about verses 26 and 36, where David, the young shepherd boy, comes down to the valley of Elah to take bread to his uh, brothers who were fighting in that battle and he sees this great giant Philistine coming down challenging the armies of God challenging the armies of Israel and he said who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God David believed in a living God and you know that's important is it not to understand that our God is a living God Daniel believed in a living God in fact his 
his boss, Nebuchadnezzar the king, who had him cast into a lion's den, and we really say that wrong. It wasn't a lion's den. It was a den of lions. It was God's den. (laughs) God was down there in that den. But he was cast into the lion's den down there. And when he came back to see him in the sixth chapter of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, he said, has your living God been able to take care of you, Daniel? And we know the answer to that, don't we? That living God shut the mouths of the lions. <laughs> That's the living God that Nebuchadnezzar later would call, uh, would say that would have his way in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Paul, the apostle, in many places calls him the living God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, which we've already quoted, as Paul is writing to the young preacher Timothy, he says this to him. He says, I'm writing you, he's, he's, verse 14, he says, These things write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Which is, and, and the pillar and the ground of the truth. You see, Paul believed in a living God. He tells us, I believe Paul's the writer of the book of Hebrews. He tells us in Hebrews, uh, the 10th chapter, he makes this statement. Now you think about this, child of God. I, I think about it often. In chapter 10 and verse 31, he said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if my God was an idol of stone or of wood that I set up in my house and bowed down to, I wouldn't be too worried about falling into its hands, would you? <laughs> you know, you know it's, as we're going to see in a moment, it's important that we believe and know that God is a living God. It makes a difference in our lives. It should make a difference in our church. It should make a difference wherever we are. I don't like to think about the the chastening of God. I don't like to think about falling into the hands of the living God, but sometimes we need to. We need to remember that our God is not some sleeping God or some dead God. He's the living God. And you know, beloved, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because that living God is a powerful God. As we've already seen, he's the one true God. He has all power in heaven and in earth. And he can discipline a whole lot better than I was ever able to discipline my kids. Sometimes I got it wrong when I was disciplining my children. Oh, but our God never gets it wrong. He always gets it right. Look in the ninth chapter of Hebrews for a moment. And this brings us to some things that ought to point us to Christ. In verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, we'll begin reading there, but I want to get down to verse 14. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. I want to stop right there. This really isn't part of the message, but I want to ask you a question. How... Did he obtain eternal redemption for us? Did he obtain eternal redemption for us by him doing part of the, of the job and leaving the rest of it up to us? That's not what having obtained 
means. Having obtained means it has been done. Eternal redemption has been done, you see, and it's by His own blood. It's by His blood that it was obtained. He entered in once into the holy place. He went there one time. He, he went there with His blood. He shed His blood for our sins, and the result is that He has obtained eternal redemption for us. You know, if, if it's not certain until you do something that it hadn't, been, it hadn't been obtained, has it? But here he says it has been obtained. And in the context of this, notice as we keep reading, in the context of that statement, he says, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, now listen, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here we find it again, the living God. So you see, it wasn't just the Old Testament writers that believed he was a living God. It was the New Testament writers. And in fact, if you go over to Matthew, the 16th chapter sometime, and you read about that encounter with Peter and the apostles on the shores of the Jordan River there, on the banks of the Jordan River, where, uh, where he asked them, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Uh, you know, they say, some say you're Jeremiah, some Elijah, some one of the other prophets. But he says, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. <laughs> You know, elsewhere we're going to find that Jesus Christ and his Father are one. He says, I and my Father are one. So he is, and we're going to get to that. I don't know if we get to it today. We're going to talk about the idea, that this concept of the Trinity that's taught throughout the Word of God. But, but right now, just keep in mind that he is, he is the living God. And he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. He's approving that statement there by Peter. And that's where he goes on to say, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Over the book of Revelation, we'll go to this one more place and then move on a little bit. In the book of Revelation, you know the, you know the setup here that John the Revelator, John the Apostle, is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he's in his elderly years. He, I don't know exactly how old he was, but this is in the 90s A.D. Remember, Jesus was crucified somewhere in the 30s A.D., in the 30s. He was about 33 years old when it happened, and we think he was probably born in 4 B.C. or somewhere that, thereabouts. But it's not a certain date there, but it's, it's kind of a general date. But, but in the 30s, sometime around 30 A.D., Jesus was crucified, and John was already an adult. John was a fisherman. He was engaged in fishing for a trade, and, and John became one of his apostles. He became the apostle that Jesus loved. He became one that was so close to him that he reclined upon his bosom. He laid his head upon Jesus' breast at one point, we're told. Oh, how I long to be able to be that close to Christ one day. I want to lay my head on Jesus' breast. I want to just, you know, do you ever remember when your father would hold you up tight, maybe, uh, and, and hold, or someone you love would just hold you close and it make you feel so much better? Can you imagine that kind of closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ? The one who loves you more than your father ever did, than your mother ever did, than anybody that you can think of ever has. He loves you with an everlasting love, and one day he will be in his presence. So oh, I, I long for that. John had that experience. 
and then he saw him crucified, and then he saw him resurrected, and then John's the only apostle, we're told, that died a natural death. All the others died martyrs' deaths. But he was persecuted, my beloved. He was persecuted. He was a pastor of a church over there, and he, he was exiled for his faith. He was put on this island of Patmos, and, and he was uh, stuck over there uh, laboring for the Roman government. And, and one day, when he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ came to him and appeared to him. His friend came to him. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J, C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.